Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 427, featuring Isaac Bretzel, who is the founder and CEO of Avatar OS, a fascinating company. You guys know I have a huge passion for digital humans and all the different ways that they're being used. And Isaac has uh, founded a company dedicated to digital humans. Uh, we talk about his past, of course, and how he thinks the importance of being a generalist in the world of digital humans is really interesting and important. Uh, also find out that he is one of the people that's behind little Michaela. Little Michaela is a fascinating person who is actually a completely CG person and also an uh, Instagram influencer and has been very, very popular, been in the news quite a bit. So it's really interesting to hear his take on that and how that all came to be. Uh, but since then, he has formed Avatar OS, this re really interesting company dedicated to digital humans. And um, he talks about the operating system of digital humans and what that means and how that what that implies. So we'll definitely get into that. And mostly about the interoperability of them, meaning how do you take your digital humans and you take, transfer them to different platforms and how that interoperability can persist, which I also find very, very interesting. Um, and then, of course, we talk about how AI will affect Avatar OS more specifically and what, in fact, is their endgame. So it's really, really cool. Uh, fascinating to have Isaac on, a really cool and interesting person and a very interesting company. All right, we have a few announcements. First, on our product side of things, which you can find all of these out at chaos.com. Uh, V-Ray 6.1 for Maya is out. Lots of great uh, updates have been added to this. You definitely are going to want to check it out. We have Chaos Scatter has been added to Maya as well. So you're going to be able to see Chaos Scatter inside of 6.1. Uh, native uh, support for Apple Silicon has been added. So if you're on Mac OS and you want to have native support for Apple Silicon, it's been added in 6.1. We have also improved our profiler. So those of you who've been using our profiler, there's several improvements have been added there, which is really cool. And uh, improvements on our USD integration as well. Uh, that's really cool. Path guidings through uh, OpenPGL has been added. We've also added uh, AI upscaling and uh, optics AI denoiser have been added as well. So that's really cool and a lot, lot more. So of course, you can check all these out at chaos.com. Okay, we have several uh, events going on as well. Uh, first, of, we're going to be at AIA 23 in San Francisco, June 8th through 9th. Uh, and we will be at Neocon in Chicago, June 11th through 13th. And of course, if you want to check that out, you can just go to chaos.com slash events. Uh, there is one other thing that I want to sort of tell you guys about. This is not actually uh, associated with chaos, but it's something that I think is really cool. And it's an opportunity to announce here because I thought uh, it was just absolutely amazing. There's this fantastic artist. Her name is Alexa Mead, and she's a painter, uh, to put it in the simple terms. Uh, but she paints on almost any surface and does huge paintings that like basically this entire room could be painted behind me. Then that's the kind of thing that she does. But she also paints on people as well and on clothes and on hats and has this incredible style of painting and these great ideas. Well, what she has done, she has taken a closed Best Buy in New York City, literally on Fifth Avenue. It is at a 529 Fifth Avenue in New York City, which is 44th and 5th. And she's turned it into something called Wonderland Dreams. 
and the entire area, every surface has been painted. Everything has been done in a fantastic way. And if you're watching this uh, uh, this uh, video, or if you're watching this podcast in video form on YouTube, you can see it. Uh, we're playing it in the back right now, right now, so you can sort of check it out. It's really, really fascinating, and I definitely recommend you guys check it out. So if you want to go see it. Uh, I don't know how much longer it's going to be up, but it's gonna, she said it's going to be up at least till this summer. It's a very expensive space to to rent, as you can imagine, in New York City. Uh, but you'll see it's been through the summer. So if you're in New York City uh, or you happen to be going to New York City this summer, I would not miss this. And again, you can check it out at wonderlanddreams.com. Uh, really fascinating to check it out uh, and, and see what's been done there. Really amazing space. Okay, a uh, couple other things. If you want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can just go to chaos.com slash CG Garage. Uh, and if you want to watch this podcast, including what I was just describing with Wonderland Dreams, uh, you can just go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Again, that is youtube.com slash chaos group TV. And of course, if you have any other ideas of podcasts or things you'd like to do, we've been getting some really great ones lately. You can always mail, uh, email us labs at chaos.com. But for now, Please enjoy episode number 427 with Isaac Bratzel. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray And while image-based lighting is really swell You need to make sure everything has for now All right, well, Isaac, I appreciate you coming on. This is very exciting. I, uh, a lot of many of my listeners know I have a deep interest in digital humans and obviously avatars have become an important part of uh, what we need to think about, especially with things like Web3 and in artificial intelligence. So you're right in the hot spot right now. So um, before we talk, uh, get into digital humans, let's get a little bit about your background. What, what, where are you? I mean, how did you start getting into computer graphics? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's always hard to go all the way back. <laughs> how far do you go? But um, yeah, I guess the, from the very roots, my dad was an artist. So I grew up with a, a lot of interest in art. I was always good at drawing. You know, so when you're a kid, if you find something you're good at, you tend to kind of like gravitate towards those things. Um, so I think it started with just like a, a decent hand-eye coordination and interest um, and kind of went from there. But I'm always, always very good at math and technical things as well. So I think throughout, I went to, ended up going to undergraduate school with, with an art major um, and realized pretty quickly that that just pure art thing wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so when I kind of discovered that Animation and visual effects was a career, right? That kind of was an eye-opening moment for me early on. Um, so I went and got my master's degree in animation and visual effects. Um, so that's kind of how I initially jumped into the animation world, just kind of like full-on, moved across the country, went to a, a, a master's degree at VFX school, and, and learned a whole lot. Um, then getting into the industry, I also discovered something else about myself, which is that I'm very intellectually curious and bored easily, which didn't really sit very well with a lot of big studio type of roles, right? So I found myself right. gravitating towards small companies, people that were trying to solve really complex problems, and oftentimes companies that were trying to solve problems that are way above their pay grade, right? So companies right. that were too small and too ambitious for their own good were places that I found myself gravitating towards because then I had a chance to really go and, and figure some things out. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, that is a very interesting point. Uh, just the sort of trying to 
to, to find problem solving. I did the same thing. Honestly, I worked at some big, some big visual effects houses and they, they only wanted to focus on one little narrow thing. And then I was like, this isn't good enough. I need to go to yeah. places where they have way bigger ideas to solve. So totally get it. Um, yeah. so what was your interest when you, obviously you went into visual effects, what was there an area that you focused on? Were you sort of more thinking generalist at that point? Yeah, I think I was really, um, almost, I would say like obnoxiously naive, maybe intentionally so about like, cause you know, when you when we join the master program, they really try to push you to specialize right away. And I was, wow. completely, I was completely resistant to that. I was like, I want to learn everything. I want to do everything I can. I want to animate. I want to create characters and everything else. Um, I definitely gravitated towards character creation right away. Like modeling, texture, like just the immediacy of creating something was like the starting point. It's like I had to do that first and then sure. I wanted to learn how to rig it and animate it and do visual effects and everything. So I did learn quite a broad skill set in, um, in grad school, but you know, there's only so much you can learn when you're like just starting out, but that's continued. I think like you start with the very first mindset, but I've always, I don't think you can get a full idea of how to do one specific skill without knowing the surrounding skills, right? I just don't think that's the case. So I think if you're, you know, if you're a modeler, you at least have to know the basics of rigging and, you know, the step before and after you at the minimum. Right. And mm -hmm. I've always gone far beyond that to like, I really, <laughs> I need to know how everything works. I need to be able to pick it apart with my brain so I can put it back together again, you know? Yeah. 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 That's interesting. So, so you sort of, sort of dabbled in all the areas, right? Yeah. I've done a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. I mean, like I always like, I feel like you, you can get 80% of the way to competency pretty quickly. It's that last 20%, right? Sure. So I always feel like it's a pretty good bet to be able to like, you, you can get to 80% of a skill set pretty quickly. Like why not do that? Invest that 20% of the time it takes to get 80% of the way there. And then if there's a need to like, you can go like go farther, it really takes a long time to really get to the elite level of a skill but you can get a lot especially now with technology and tutorials and everything everywhere on the internet i feel like you can get up to competency competency pretty quickly in different areas and i think that's immensely valuable for each individual area as well so i guess i'm a full generalist skill set and i'm a really believer in in generalist both in terms of visual effects and just in terms of general i think it really um, elevates your level of competency across different areas do you feel that the internet has become a resource that is almost more valuable and for ambitious people like yourself than a formal education? I think it absolutely can be. I think that there's a number of qualifiers, though. I think one is confidence. I think it's really hard for you see a lot of people that are very skilled that lack the confidence in their skill because they always assume somebody has more formal training or knows more about that or that there's this like specific, uh -huh. you know, diploma handed upon you now by the grace of god you are empowered with these skill sets that you know everything right and it's like sure. nobody knows everything you know it's okay to just be learning so i think people that have that kind of like i called myself like kind of obnoxious naivety of, of like no i can do this right it's like i know i'm you know yeah i can do that i can learn this i can figure this out i think those people really benefit from the immense amount of information that's being thrown at us and then I think the challenge just becomes how do you find, like, this is a theme of, for me lately is like the signal through all the noise. There's so much out there now. There's so much information being bombarded at you to find what's the valuable stuff versus what's a side distraction or a tangent that's going to take you down the wrong path, right? That's the other challenge, I think, now with just the amount of information that's available. Absolutely. I, I actually remember very much, uh, like, my first uh, CG supervisor at my first job at Digital Domain did I just do that? Sorry, I'll fix that. Uh, my first uh, supervisor at, at DD, uh, he uh, he was telling me, uh, he gave me an assignment and I was just brand new and very you know naive, like you said, and also self-conscious and, and not knowing what my skill set. And, and he said, here, you have to do this. And I look at him and I was like, I don't know how to do that. And he goes, 
well, neither do I, but I think between the two of us, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, oh, that's how it works. Yay. Yeah. Let's do yeah. that. And it was so, such a relief to have that like, oh yeah, yeah. Just figure it out. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's what it's all about. There's such a beauty in that, I think, too. And I think it, you have to learn a little bit of that. It's like you, you don't have to know everything, but you have to have the ability and the confidence to dive in and know it might be painful at times. But sure. like after you do it a few times, like you figure like the world isn't going to end. You're going to figure it out. You're going to get through it. You know, ask for help when you need it. Yep. But don't just stop beforehand because you're scared it might not work out. Like jump in, like, you know, figure it out. Somebody like anybody else that knows how to do it. They learned it the same way you're going to learn it, which is by jumping in and trying to figure out something hard, you know. Right. And then the people above you are going to go more impressed by the fact that you can learn anything rather than what you already know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's always roles where like, you know, as someone that, you know, has done a lot of studio stuff, like there are roles where you just need someone, you, you want to have a predictable input and output, right? And you just need sure. someone that can do that thing very well. But there are also a ton of roles where like the most impressive thing an artist can do is like show that ability and willingness to jump in and figure something new out like that. That's going to impress your supervisor more than, than pretty much anything else. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, okay, that's wonderful for you to bring that up. Uh, I do have uh, uh, a question. So you started focusing on digital humans after a little a bit, or what, what? Well, first of all, what studios were you working on? What kind of projects were you working on at the beginning? So you know, like really early on, I, I think my first job was like in, in a medical animation company, um, which is oh, interesting. Wow. I did a lot of like low, like learned how to do low poly modeling for like early early days AR VR type of projects, which is you know, there's a lot of learning there. Um, and then I ended up doing, um, working for a company that was doing like pre-production for a lot of stuff. And that was interesting because you end up doing everything. So you're doing like 20 minute 3D animations in less than a week, right? Right. Like, sorry, 20 second. Like, it's just like a crazy amount of work. And the quality isn't that high. Obviously, it's an animatic, you're, but you're trying to figure out how to cut every possible corner, the right. smallest possible team. And like, so that's where I really learned a lot about like how to do every aspect of it, how to cut every corner possible and like get to the result you need by the timeline. So it's almost like this problem solving thing of like, all right, we have this many people, this much time, we need this, what steps can we cut out of this to get there, right? So you're right. never, it's never like, the answer is never, no, you can't do it. The answer is like, there's some equation that gets us to an end result. You just have to sacrifice X, Y, and Z. So sure. that was a really interesting learning experience. But from there, I ended up working with, um, you know, I gravitated towards digital humans because of my interest in character creation um, and digital humans just being the hardest thing. And at the time, there was still a very much a question whether we could do like digital humans that could cross the uncanny valley or whether like, what was the purpose? Like, is there really a need for digital humans beyond like, you know, a few seconds at a movie here and there to replace, you know, a scene. Yep. And I found the opportunity to work with IPsoft creating their avatar Amelia. And that was, that was fascinating. So we created an, uh, a 3d avatar that was connected to the artificial intelligence that they were building. This is back in like 2015, 2014, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, that was connecting their, you know, emotional states and their text-to-speech things into 3D animated visemes that were trying to blend in and blend out. And there's just so much, so much complex stuff going on there. So that was kind of my entry into not just digital humans in like a very specialized way, but also outside of the effects a little bit more and into more of like technology bridging with 3D dynamics and AI and all this stuff. And that was really fascinating. So that's kind of like my that's how I could really kind of started going down that rabbit hole even more deeply and really being fascinated by that, that, that specifically. Did you have a stronger interest? So, so you, it sounds to me like your interest in art and, and, and digital humans and computer graphics and the challenges was all driven by some challenges, not necessarily about, I want to work on movies, right? Cause that's, 
Yeah, hundred percent. I think I definitely had like I would say if if I, if I was a kid and I was looking at things and when I had this realization about VFX and animation, I definitely pictured Disney and I love Pixar and I thought that was amazing. I remember being a kid and being like, "Whoa, if I could draw, like if I could do that, like just draw things, like that would be amazing, right?" So I definitely think there was some of that at the beginning. But I think at the end of the day, for me, it's it's like, what's the challenge? What's the problem that I could try to solve? And it's kind of like this thrill of trying to figure out how to make how to make these things that really drives a lot of what I do less of like this overarching like grand plan I have of what area I want to go into but yeah I think my my decision making path was fueled very much early on by seeing the path you go on bigger VFX studios and realizing that that wasn't me like that was not something I was gonna you know be happy doing like I think some people would be and they really just want to get their name on the Marvel screen and I totally understand that same with video games, but I just knew like if I was doing that one job for like two years straight to get that oh, yeah. one film out there, like I'd probably go crazy and end up doing something else anyway. So I might as well just jump right into it. Well, you got to that conclusion pretty quickly, which is amazing. <laughs> it tends to take some people 15 years to, before they start to get burned out. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think it's interesting that you went right into digital humans. It is an area deep in my heart. You know, I actually, many years ago, it's, I created a, a group called the WikiHuman Project. Uh, and so it uh, hasn't been active in, in many, many years, but I was sort of always interested in sort of uh, the concept of uh, uh, an open source area to explore digital humans. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, okay, so you were working on Amelia, right? 2015 mm -hmm. or so? So what, what did you learn about digital humans at that time? What were the things that fascinated you about that? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I would say the overarching thing that I understood coming out of that project is that the reason it's so hard isn't just the complexity, it's the division of skill sets that need to come together in order to create something. In other words, the people that can do that work are engineers and they own, they like they don't understand the artistic part of it, even if they're have worked with it, right? So you have to sure. somehow bridge this artist, engineer, coding things mindset. And you there's so much loss in translation. There's so much that it takes years of trial and error and messing things up to finally find that moment when magic happens. I think we, if we have VFX artists, we all kind of know this thing where everything comes together and all of a sudden you see it come to life and it's like this magic there. And sure. you realize how hard that is, how easy it is to not get that, how easy it is to create poor work or like subquality work and how hard it is to create really great work. And to be able to like code that in, I think engineers want to expect a, you know, this... This equation results in this output, which is magically going to connect with people. And it, that doesn't quite work that way, right? There's this artistic sense you have to have with this digital human and observe it and understand like, okay, this isn't working why, and be able to diagnose why it's not working and create these different things. And that's really hard to like mesh this artistic and engineering and like this technology world to get everybody to understand on the same page. So there was a lot of like specific technical stuff, but I think that was the overarching understanding that I had is that this is really hard because... There's so many different elements going into this to create a result. And you're trying to like hard code in this like connection with whoever the audience is. And that's really, really difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And it's, I think it was interesting. I saw that, you know, one of the reasons uh, that I saw a lot of success or at least in the early days at Digital Domain, there was definitely a lot of technology said, but if you only rely on technology, it gets a little dicey and mm -hmm. you have to have a specific skill set. So like see people like Dan Platt at the time, uh, who was really good at anatomy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, really knew sort of how digital, how humans needed to look for it to, to, to function correctly. Uh, the thing I think was interesting was uh, with technology, you can help eliminate some of the variables that are 
you don't really know if this is going to make it good or bad, right? So I thought that was one of one of the most important things I learned about about how that works in in that area. But everything you said is absolutely correct. I think this is really really uh, a well uh, really well uh, put. Um, okay, so what were some of the where did, where did you go from there? Where did you evolve some of your skill sets on digital humans from there? Sure. Yeah. So I think there I had you know I had the opportunity to do what I always do, which is like bite off more than I can chew, figure stuff out, right? So I was like, can you do this? Yeah, absolutely, right? That's always been my motto. I was like, yeah, I'll figure it out, right? We'll dive in, spend the time. Um, I also like was kind of responsible for making things happen and with a certain budget and, and like big, you know, events happening at certain times of the year. So I went out and made contacts and found the best people in the industry to work with. So that was when I first met Vladimir at Three Lateral. Um, mm-hmm. And before, you know, before MetaHuman was a thing, like I reached out to Vlad, you know, found out what they were doing and like flew out to Serbia. I was like, this is great. This is what we need. So we actually scanned an actress and like worked with them to create a, a 3D rig that would work that we could then connect with, you know, some learning what the engineers are doing on their back end. What are the outputs they're trying to connect to? What do we need to do to be able to make this like a templatable thing? And that was the way we went. So that created a great first partnership with them. And then actually also the cubic motion people, like we were hooked up with them and found them. It's like, these are the, this is the best way to kind of create this um, facial camera to animation workflow. So it's just kind of awesome to see them then go and get acquired by Epic and do great things um, and kind of see that magic that they end up doing at the last few GDCs um, and really kind of become some of the leaders in this kind of templatized digital human. How can we, so to what you're saying, is like we can't solve everything with technology, but we can start to like raise this, like we're start now we're starting from a way advanced yep. place than where we were from before. Like you had to create everything from scratch. No, now you can start from here. And if you have the knowledge to do it, now you can do this much more easily and you can templatize it way more and you can scale it a little bit more than you could in the past at least, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's amazing. You're getting connected with those guys at Cubic Motion and uh, and and, and Relateral. I mean, those are those definitely at that time was like the where a lot of this advancement was happening. Yeah. Did you connect at all with some of the people at ICT and some of the uh, light stage stuff as well? Yeah, I went over and met Ari over there in those early mm-hmm. days, and we saw the light stage and everything. Um, and we didn't end up doing like using like we ended up using throughout the Relateral system instead of theirs, but that was sure. one of the ones we were considering. But got to see the light stage and some of the they, some really cool projects going on there at the time that I actually haven't seen beyond like just research papers. But I'm sure it's gone into a lot of technology that a lot of the studios have built. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just like there was a lot of innovation happening then. There still is now, but it was really kind of a little little mini explosion of digital human, you know, interest in technology and kind of validation, I think, of the use case for that technology. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, some well, tell us about some of the projects you were you ended up working on the digital humans. Yeah. So I think from there, from from Amelia, then um, I got a little bit uh, worn out by it's a very big commercial like New York company. And that wasn't, again, it's like, to well, explain, point. To, explain people a little bit about what that project was and what, sure, what people sure, are sure. doing with it. Yeah. So IPsoft was a, is a big IT company and they're really into autonomous um, IT solutions for, especially for large businesses. Right. So they're sure. And, and their CEO, Chayton Debay is really has been for like a longest time, really big on AI and thought that like AI was going to be the solution and that that he needed to put a human face on it because in order for it really to be a mass adoption, you need to be able to connect to people. So he had that kind of insight before it was popular. So he had this idea to create Amelia um, and their first iterations of it were very 2D, very kind of like lo-fi, like probably years out of date. Um, mm-hmm. So when I got connected with them, it was to create a fully 3D interactive avatar that could put a face to this natural language AI that they were building. Um, and that avatar ended up being integrated in like I forget the stats now, but like 9 million conversations, hundreds of thousands, one of the leaders in the space. Um, so it's kind of like the business version of Siri or or sure. Alexa, 
that that is hard. You know, you could do your car insurance and you could talk to Amelia and she'll actually speak with you and understand your problems and solve that. And this is before this current AI wave that was happening. So it's kind of like a little oh, bit yeah. before its time. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Okay. So that was the main, <laughs> uh, the main idea behind it. It was kind of like a, you know, like a chat bot, but with a face in a sense. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. It was like, and, the, and their vision, I think was like in the future, you walk into a hotel, you won't have a concierge. So there'll be Amelia on the screen and she'll be telling you about the hotel. You can ask her any questions. It could just solve all your problems for you. Very much like what we see today with a lot of these um, things. So it's very much a, an AI chatbot with natural language integration that was integrated to your IT systems that could actually not just talk to you, but also solve the problems for you. So if you have IT problems for your company, you talk to Amelia, she can actually go in and do things within your, your be plugged into your IT system. That actually happened to me in Vegas. I went to some, some event I had to go to and register in a hotel that they put me in. I never spoke to a person. They walk right up to a kiosk. I scan my ID and it spit out room keys and get, with a map to tell me how to get to where I need to do. And when I checked out, I just dropped it into a. I was like, I never spoke to a person the whole time I was here. It was crazy. Did you like it or did you hate it? Like, did you well, miss the human no, connection? it was very convenient. I'll tell you yeah. that. It was, but at the same time, I was like, that's kind of weird. You know, what I'm about <laughs> but if you think about what you what we just did, it's like it's not that hard a problem to solve. They know my head, my reservation, right? I think, but I think what would have been better is if I had someone, maybe even an artificial person, to say, "Good evening, Mr. Nichols." <laughs> yeah. yes. So it would have been it would have been nice to see that. So definitely see that as something that's going to happen. I think it's going to make people happy. But we'll get into <laughs> to how digital mm-hmm. humans and AI is going to work together. Okay, so after working on that project, what was the next one that you end up working on? Yeah, so from there, um, I jumped to a company, a startup called Broad in LA, and they're the company that's responsible for little Michaela, who you may or may not have heard of. But I have. <laughs> yeah, so the impetus for that was definitely like being burned out with, you know, flying from LA to New York a lot, big corporate company, and just kind of like looking for something different. So I met Trevor McFedries, who's kind of just like a unicorn, brilliant person and really charismatic and had this crazy idea. And at first, I was kind of like, it's a pretty crazy idea to like build this Hard to even explain at the time what it was, like a virtual influencer, but he had kind of, he had worked with um, Spotify before. He had been a DJ, he had been a software engineer, and he kind of knew how how pop culture worked and how to kind of like this idea of kind of like hacking celebrity and deconstructing it and building it back with the digital person that could scale. So I ended up saying, well, you know, what the heck, let's jump in and try. And we ended up building Michaela. Um, and Michaela ended up being like a pretty crazy success. It was kind of like eye opening to see the kind of like yeah, she was a big Instagram, it's a big yeah. Instagram follower, right? So yeah, ended up with like eight million followers across social media, like fifty million song screens on Spotify, and all this stuff, and kind of validating a lot of like the questions around digital, like I guess you call them digital influencers now or whatever, like the the case may be. But it was just like really fascinating, like crazy experience, like start off with like four of us, in, you know, in a tiny loft in the, in the arts district at LA, like trying to say like, hey, can we build something that's typically reserved for really high in VFX for a specific use case and say, no, we're going to do this with a small team and, and tell stories on the internet. And like where, where people's eyes are now, like kids are on social media. Can we tell this story in a, in a different media and also in a place reserved typically for real life humans and real life events, so-called, like at least that's what we, people had considered at the time. So it was a very like, kind of like, Interesting project to work on and learned a lot for sure. Did you design little Michaela? I would say Trevor designed, Trevor actually jumped into Dash 3D. Like, so he like jumped into okay. Dash 3D and started pushing sliders around, right? So the very first versions of Michaela were actually already concepted by him. It's kind of like this, this idea. And then I, I built her in, in Maya and like, you know, more, more tools. When I got there, I kind of built animation sure. rigs and like we used some of the tool sets that are a little more standard to kind of like 
upgrade her and make her able to do animation because the early days that we also did it was just you know still images we'll set on instagram that was about it right so we then kind of like took it into like animation and visual effects and then even at one point doing uh in unreal the live interviews with like jay balvin and, and other artists at coachella which is pretty crazy that was kind of one of the highlights of that whole project that's pretty interesting that's pretty interesting. i've always had a fascinating fascination with with her um, I, I have a huge interest in, in, in the Uncanny Valley, which I, I'd love, love to hear your opinion with, about it. But just specifically with related to her, she doesn't quite look human, but she doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have the the uh, the disgust response that you have from digital human. She does not at all. Obviously, she doesn't. Because, but I think it's interesting that she has this this look that is like, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. And you have an emotional response, which is, of course, everything that the Uncanny Valley is all about. And and sort of uh, looking at her, which is a, just a very surreal experience. And I think that's felt very appropriate for who, who she is. <laughs> yeah. I'm using the word she in a strange way. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. No, I think that's, you're 100%, you hit the mark. I, I fully agree. And I think, you know, that's par- probably a little bit of a combination of serendipity and try on error. But also sure. very intentional in the terms of like we actually had serious discussions about like in a world where you're scrolling, 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 the idea that you'll stop and be like, what's that? Right. Is right. actually it's like the, the idea that that's a feature, not a bug. Right. So you yep. don't fix that. You solve for that. But you also don't want people to be repulsed or like taken out of it. Right. You want them to be curious and then dig into the story. Right. So the idea is always like. You know, in tech, you talk a lot about funnels with consumer applications and stuff. So, like, what's the funnel? Like, you get somebody interested and then you, like, funnel them into your universe. And with Broad, it was always about, can we tell, um, we believe storytelling can be transformative. Can we tell very interesting stories with Michaela as this entry point to, like, a digital character universe of, like, things? And that was kind of, like, this idea of, like, what could we do something like that? And basically... You know, our CEO talked a lot about inverting, like, the Disney pyramid, right? So, the typical way you would do things um, with a this type of stuff is you first, you make this big feature film, like with a star Wars. Right. And then from there you might make like a, a experience or like a theme park. And gradually at the end of the, at the bottom end of the pyramid is like this, you're selling lightsabers at the merchandise store. Right. Sure. Um, so in this case, like, can you invert that? Can you create this character and sell? Like the first thing you're doing is just like getting interesting people there. And then from there, build a universe on top of it, where at the end of it maybe is like this long form narrative because you've already validated the audience. And that was a pretty novel concept at the time. And I think it's pretty, still pretty interesting to see if that's a thing that becomes possible in the future to kind of like create a following driven based on the character and then drive more and more narratives out of that with new media. And that's kind of like this, I still, I'm still pretty interested in that concept, you know? Yeah. I think that's interesting because you guys not just, you didn't just build her, you built several other characters and they were they were all interacting with each other over Instagram, yep. which is kind of a fascinating narrative as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a whole experience as well, just like kind of trying to figure out like what things would work. So we built a character called Blocko, who always had his face covered. We built mm-hmm. a char- character called uh, Bermuda, which is like Michaela's frenemy, where they're kind of like friends, kind of enemies. Like always, there's always this stuff going on, you know. So it was just kind of like trying to figure out what what things work and, and interesting things like that. I think it's so fascinating that you're almost creating, you know, this, this, this real avatars of Instagram, you know, it's like just, it's this, this fat, you know, this, it's such a great structural narrative and social narrative that you guys are constructing completely fictional that people are following along. Like it's this amazing, uh, you know, Ooh, look at what's going on here. You know, yeah. I, I think it's really, really cool in some ways if you think about it. 
Yeah, and I think there's there's always things you're, there's always gonna be pushback, and I think these days is a great time to talk about that with AI and everything else. Yep. And at, at the time, I thought it was really fascinating because I think one of the things you're trying to do is like what I thought it was like a really like great flashlight, shining a light on celebrity in general and people understanding like what you're following, like what is a brand because that's what you're following. And I think one of the great lines that Trevor had early on was like people would ask like, "Is Michaela real?" And the response was like that she's as real as Rihanna, right? And the, the obviously the point being that. Th- you don't know who Rihanna the person is. You know Rihanna right. the brand, right? And that, like, Michaela's brand is just as real as Rihanna's brand. And what you're following, what you're seeing, that interaction is the same level of reality, if you want to call it that, as, as sure. you're experiencing with any other celebrity. And I think now that seems way more obvious, but at the time it seemed, it was very much like an uphill battle to kind of, like, explain that and kind of have that resonate with, with people, at least publicly. So, Well, what is the, you know, speaking of brands, what is the economy of uh, a little Michaela? Like, what's her economic drive? Yeah, I think for us at Bread, it was always to be able to scale and tell stories. That was the goal, right? And that's why we were a venture-backed company. It was kind of like, we need this, we need an initial investment to get over the bottleneck of scalability in order to get to where we wanted to go, right? So we weren't interested in chasing dollars. Like, I think if you look at the press, the appearance is probably like, oh, we're making bank on these partnerships and brands and other stuff. Right. That was was never really the case. If that was the goal, we could have like pivoted to do that. But that was never the goal. The goal of Michaela was not to be a social media influencer in that sense or like be able to then market to brands. The goal was to tell transformative stories in new ways with new characters and grow a digital character universe and kind of, you know, I think the the ultimate goal would have been to be like build the our version of the Marvel universe, right? You start with Iron Man and you create a narrative that pulls people in, and then you introduce more characters, and then there's these layers of just story worlds, right? And it's just right. it begins this whole thing, and that obviously is really ambitious. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we were about five years too soon for technology and scalability of digital avatars to really be able to pull that off on on the scale that we were, right? We know how expensive digital humans and that kind of content creation is, especially when you get into high end animation. Um, so for us, we were pretty limited and had to be very selective. Mm-hmm. And because we were doing that, we re- really actually put a huge damper on any brand deals or revenue opportunities that we were trying to do. It was really only ones that really kind of promoted the the direction and kind of the the vibe of Michaela as a person that would have helped her in terms of that. So it was actually that that wasn't really much of what we were trying to do there in a sense, even though it might have seemed that way from the outside. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And how long were you there for? So I think I'm really bad with dates, but I think Brad was, I think it was around 2016 till yeah. we got acquired by Dapper Labs in 2021, 2021, okay. yeah, November 2021. So that was like, I guess about a five year, five year journey there um, from my first days to final acquisition. Okay. Okay. And did you stay with them after the acquisition? I was there for one year and okay. then at the one, at the one year mark is when I left to found my new company, Avatar OS. Okay. Now let's find out about that. Tell us more about Avatar OS. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Avatar OS is basically at the natural kind of continuation in my mind of what we were trying to do with Lil Michaela and before that. Um, and the idea of trying to like s- scale digital humans. And it's really a bet for me on like a new version of what you can call the metaverse or other things. But I would say right now I'm describing it as this this idea that, you know, a lot of digital worlds are popping up left and right and they're largely empty and there's a lot of negative press around the metaverse and everything else. And that's kind of odd because any definition that we have of the metaverse that we kind of agree on agrees that it's also years away, right? It's not actually a reality right now. And to me, I think the interesting um, juxtaposition of that with social content that that is getting more views than it ever has, like 200 plus billion per day, I think I saw the other day, um, and vertical video being kind of like the one form of content that's able to go viral across every platform at once. And it seems like today that should be the focus if you're trying to tell stories. 
But what if you could have a content form that's able to leverage that medium and also gradually transport people to a more immersive and 3D virtual worlds? And I think that's where digital human avatars are a pretty strategic bet in my mind. I think they're significantly different, and you probably uh, love your opinion on this, but I think it's, it's significantly different than a lot of the tools you're seeing now with AI that I call pixel pushing, where you're kind of moving, you know, you're putting filters on top of things or using things to create 2D images with AI that then blend. And I think while that can be very useful for certain tools, I don't think it's the same as having an actually 3D immersive avatar that can then, like the same avatar that can star in a video game or star in a, a film or be on social media or just like kind of do everything. And I think that my bet is kind of on that type of storytelling and that that ability for digital humans as we're able to scale them with better and better technology um, to be able to create stories that actually resonate and these characters that kind of live <laughs> live in a sense in their own kind of persistence. And I think that would be really pretty cool because I think the world is only becoming more virtual. And I think that human element is really essential, right? If we're, if I really want to empower that human element to our virtual world that really continues to tell human stories with technology that then becomes more and more immersive and fully three-dimensional. I, I do agree with you in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I think that there's very interesting that, you know, digital humans still need to sort of exist inside of a data set rather than a bunch of concepts. Uh, and I think that that's kind of uh, true in a lot of ways. But I also think that the way that that data set is created is going to change drastically <laughs> through that process, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think even what's the, like just the motion capture, for example, Move AI is just ridiculous how yeah. insanely good that is. And it just sort of takes a lot of technical, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, motion capture suits that people were investing in they don't necessarily seem as important as they used to, right? Yeah, I think the 100%, I was actually talking to that about with somebody just the other day. Um, and I think what, to me, the, the strategic bet and the best bet for me is like, you're going to keep taking these um, problems and breaking them down into smaller and smaller bits mm -hmm. and then building it back up and you're going to have something pretty special. So with me, what it's like, we love Move AI and we've been talking to them a lot because I think they're solving a, a crucial piece of this, which is like, can you solve for getting this motion capture input from the simplest possible way and allow that to, to work and look good and use the eye to fill in the blanks and et cetera. And what we want to do from there is now say, can we go from there, a simple input to not just like a stylized avatar? Because I think, you know, we know by default, you can create, take a, a simple animation and put it on a stylized avatar and have it look, well, good enough to be okay, sure. right? You don't notice that. But you put that same animation on a very high-end, hyper-risk avatar, it's going to be very off-putting. It's going to look wrong. It's not like the, that level of complexity goes way up. We call it exponential complexity, right? Sure. But can you layer on machine learning data sets and 40 volumetric motion and other things that say, now we take a simple input and we're learning now to layer on more complexity to like turn that into like how, it, how a digital avatar that's high-end should act. So I think things start to get pretty interesting. We start to break up these problems and build more data sets that can able to inform it. And this, and again, we're not taking everything to, to the end point. You still need the ability and the talent. You need to know what you're doing. We're just like raising that bar of like, again, you're starting from here now. Like you're starting from a higher place where you can do right. more quickly. You can scale more broadly. You can do better, like more integrated things in, in a more enabling way, I guess. is, is That's the end goal here. I, yeah, I, I think that that is one of the very fascinating parts of AI is the, is its ability to interpret the in-betweens, right? So it can take, you know, pixels in between and upscale them, you know, and then it can take uh, uh, noise and, and denoise and figure out what it looked like denoised, right? And so it can figure out mm -hmm. what the ends should be. Uh, so if you start with a sparse data set and be able to upscale that data set, it doesn't necessarily need to be smooth. In fact, I think, and I'm sure you would agree, on a motion capture, one of the biggest... Uh, sins that people do is they 
over smooth over smooth the data and everything looks like we well, you know yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so you don't get all the all the beauty of the in-betweens so i think taking an ai to be able to do the in-betweens is really cool even look at nerfs for example nerfs are fascinating yeah. and just taking such a sparse data set of images and create an entire basically light field out of it which is kind of incredible yeah, uh, yeah. so so okay so so what is what is the goal uh with the term avatar os I'm assuming the OS stands for operating system. Is that correct? <laughs> that that is correct. That's my super clever, <laughs> really um, very obvious, clever, obvious very clever. Stuff. So it's 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 a system for an avatar rather than a specific avatar. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. So what we want to do is like I, I well I see a lot of things. I think that I've one when I was starting this, I saw a huge gap between consumer level avatars that were popping up mm-hmm. and high end avatars that for movie and film. So you're talking about like the difference between. I keep using this. I think it said like $78 million was spent to create three episodes of She-Hulk, right? And I mm-hmm. use that because it really pops people's eyes, some people's eyes open to really, that don't understand how complex it is to create like really high level to like the pixel, like integrated with visual effects, like how, yep. how hard, and how expensive that is versus the avatars you see that you take a scan on your phone and like, you know, do something with, right? So like sure. the difference between that and that was so dramatic. And I, I didn't see a solution in between there, even, mm-hmm. even including MetaHuman, which is a technology that I love. Mm-hmm. But like, I feel like has a, is useful for a specific use case and also itself takes a lot of domain expertise to actually set up and run and use Unreal and do all these things. So, um, so for me, it was kind of like seeing that big gap and trying to say like, can we start to fill in the gaps a little bit? Can we stop reinventing the wheel? Like one of the things that I, I understand it, but I get annoyed by is every time I see artists working on doing another retopology and our character artists doing another rig from scratch, building it out. If, you know, when they're practicing their skills, it's a great practice. But at my mindset is kind of like, can we stop reinventing the wheel and start building on top of these solutions like engineers where we're saying, now this that now this is available, now we can build better and better things so we can all create more. I think storytelling is the end goal, right? It's trying to connect and, and create, tell stories and connect with audiences and, and kind of influence the world in ways that, are, that, that we believe in um, and build these abilities to do that in, a, in unique ways. And I think the way we do that is starting to leverage technology. So leverage MetaHuman, don't try to compete with it, like leverage Move AI and this great technology and use AI and like use these tools to put together things that allow people that are creative and have stories to tell, to tell those stories in a more scalable way. Because I, you know, I know from experience, like jumping into a digital human world and trying to navigate what, what tool do I use? How do I do this, et cetera? That's, it's a nightmare from people. And I think we can be one of the people that really helps solve that problem. Okay. I, uh, you were speaking my language. I don't like reinventing the wheel. That was my biggest issue with visual humans. Even within the same company, I felt like we were throwing everything away and starting over with every project, and it was really yep. tough. Uh, and I thought that, you know, uh, I used to call it with the Wikihuman project, I call it the, the baseline. We start with a baseline, and we yep. have a good baseline, and from there we can branch off to do whatever we feel uh, is necessary. So that was definitely something. Now, granted, that was a long time ago, and we're mm-hmm. only focusing on faces. Um, but anyway, I thought it was really fascinating. Okay. So, so, so what's cool is you mentioned also, obviously, uh, um, you know, the importance of avatars in terms of what people are using. There are, you know, back in the web three, uh, you know, super interest uh, a year ago, there was a lot of people talking about all the different metaverses that people want to go to. And the big problem they had was compatibility of bringing their avatars from one metaverse to another metaverse. What are your thoughts on that process? A hundred percent. So I think interoperability is one of the key components, right? It's, it's, it's as important as anything else for these things. But I think one of the problems we have is that 
we as humans have a hard time looking to the future and understanding that it's going to be significantly different than today. We have mm-hmm. a tendency to believe it's going to be like today, but slightly different, right? But that's, mm-hmm. not, how, that's not how exponentiality works. Right. So we're trying to look into two or three years in the future and what's going to be significantly different. And it's, I don't think that the, we're going to be still in web, WebGL. I don't think we're going to be limited by like, the quality of these things. I think that people are focusing now on too many solutions that are trying to down-res and be game ready. And if you're doing it today, you need to do that. But I think if you're building for two or three years ago for Metaverse, I don't think that's going to be the, the issue. There's going to be different issues. So I'm I'm betting on something similar to pixel streaming um, or some you know better version of that that's going to allow you to take high end graphics and put it on every device. And I'm betting on you know universal scene description or something similar to that that's going to allow you to take these assets and port them to different game engines. And we're building pretty much on like we're going to build a standardized set that's using the best tools available. And then you build bridges to every platform that you need to, right? So right now it's like very similar to saying like if you're building your system here, you're building it as open as possible. And here's how you take that and put it in Unreal. Here's how you take this and put it in Unity. If Omniverse, you know, kind of like starts to build up, this is how you take it and put it in there, right? So the idea is to be platform agnostic and be open, et cetera. But I think right now you kind of have to have a specific project and say, what are you trying to do? And we'll build for that. But I think, you know, over the next two years, I think that's going to shift dramatically. So we're trying to be prepared for that. We want that. We want to build interoperable avatars. We want them to be able to do everything. It's just going to take time and take steps to get to that point. Oh, that's that is a beautiful dream that you have, my friend. I am very, <laughs> I, 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 I would love to that to be a reality. I think it is very interesting. USD is definitely, I think, something that has uh, we all had hope for, uh, but I always was skeptical, uh, especially in the early days, because it is run by a specific group that tends to go into only one direction. But uh, over the last few years, I've actually been very encouraged by the way USDs work, and I definitely. A breath of fresh air from FBX, which really needs to die at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, and not to say that it was bad. It's just just very very long in the tooth. But I also think that you know that's one of the problems I've had right now. Right? Is the idea of of these uh, these walled gardens in terms of where things going? Right. Many many tools love for you to bring your data into them, but have a real hard time letting go of that data once it leaves and having mm-hmm. the ability to transfer that data from one platform to another platform. Do you feel that what you are trying to do is trying to sort of help people in that process so they don't feel that they're trapped within the system? Absolutely. I think one of the ways we actually, one of the wedges we may be able to have is to be a platform where people can come upload their avatar, convert it to our system, and then be able to then put that in Unity, right? So if you're like, I don't, I have an avatar, I want to, I created it in character creator, what, you know, whatever the thing may be. Right. So like just solving that problem for people itself probably has value. Sure. Um, and, and so I think, we, you know, we have a long ways to go to figure out exactly how we do that and business models and everything else like that. But that's very much of a core belief of mine is that you need to be able to figure out ways to build interoperability. People, if people are going to build high-end avatars, like you need that, especially the way I envision them happening in the future is like you need to have an avatar that's updated, maintained, like that isn't obsolete after two years that can work and like that can do different things, right? I don't think you want to invest in an avatar that can only do one thing. So in terms of bring down the cost, increasing the scalability. I think interoperability is like a key component to that. And I think that can't say right now the absolute best way to do that, but I think the concept is there, right? Whether it's exactly USD or not, or some a better way emerges, um, I think that it's it's an essential piece of it in order for this to really take off. Well, the nice thing about something like USD, which is technically open source, is that you can contribute to it so that you mm-hmm. can add the processes that will enable the tools that are necessary for you to do what you need to do. So. Yep. I think that's absolutely uh, uh, 
absolutely true. Now you mentioned obviously the quality and stuff, and you're saying this is not necessarily the end goal. What are your thoughts on on the rendering of digital humans? I'm speaking for working for chaos, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, and my interest in ray tracing. Uh, what yeah. is your What are your thoughts on the on that in terms of materiality and how think people look and uh, in that way? Yeah, I think it's. I think that's something you really have to get deep into digital humans before you really understand like the complexity of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like every other object because if you talk to engineers, they they just like oh like PBR, right? It, it works, and it's like skin is different, hair is it's different, right? We, right? we haven't broken it down to a level at this point that you can actually say this acts exactly like a physically based object that's just going to like respond. And, and anybody that's tried to like take a human skin shader from like indoor to outdoor, et cetera, kind of knows this. Sure. So I think it's immensely complex. And I think that the natural path for any studio or any solution is going to be to pick one and try to perfect it and then duplicate that. Right. So then sure. the question is like how quickly or how, to what degree are we able to actually transport that to different render engines and allow people to choose, you know, their path. So that's not something I know the answer to. Like right now, like obviously you have real-time game engines and Unreal is doing a great job of having, you know, example sets so you can reproduce digital humans in a pretty high quality that's real time. You always have Arnold and V-Ray and some great um, renderers that you can get really great results. Like, you know, I remember when I was starting off trying to get that skin shader to work and look at, that was like, that was like the hardest thing to do. I remember working in Mental Ray trying to get something that looked like skin out of that. <laughs> it was a nightmare. Yeah. And now it's like way easier. You know, you watch a couple of tutorials from some of these great artists that put them on yeah. for free at YouTube and you're in there and you're creating great work. So I think that it's it's definitely headed in a really good direction. I think ray tracing and RTX technology is amazing. Um, and I think I think real-time stuff is probably going to be more and more prevalent. But then you, you also see things back kind of like backtracking a little bit into path tracing and like that having an emergence right now too. I don't know if you have any thoughts on path tracing and kind of where that's going to fit into this in, in the future, but um, it's probably going to be the ability to more easily implement, to be able to ability to sell, send high-end renders to the cloud. So you don't have like more easily because if we've, anybody has packaged up an asset to try to like render on a cloud render and set that up yourself, probably knows the pain of doing that and having sure. that being easier to implement is probably going to be a, a pretty key component as well. Well, I think uh, uh, generally, I mean, path tracing is just a, a, a type of ray tracing in some ways. But I, mean, sure. uh, uh, but I think that is what's nice about path tracing is it lend, the way that it ray traces, it lends itself very well for real-time experiences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that also what's, uh, what's fascinating is is uh, is obviously, as you just started to mention, is cloud rendering. Obviously, there's a lot more stuff going on. Every time you hit search or type something in chat GPT, there's a whole lot of GPUs working <laughs> in the <laughs> background that do not exist on your phone that are doing the work for you. And yeah. I think that digital experience, as you mentioned, vertical video is around because of that. So I think a lot of the, uh, the rendering will be happening on the cloud and streaming. Yeah. So I think those types of experiences will be big. That also means that every single thing that you do on your phone actually is translating to a whole lot more compute for everything you're doing. What yeah. are your thoughts on how the intensity of computing is going to become that uh, is sort of blind to the person doing it? I mean, I, I think that's an open-ended question, right? I, I think it's definitely, like you said, I think the, you know, I think there's definitely some tie-ins to the AI kind of explosion and like therefore the GPU explosion that's only going to enhance and therefore mm -hmm. both the benefits and maybe the detriments that that has for all of us in different ways. Um, I definitely think it will enable and accelerate the ability to do like high-end pixel streaming or again, whatever that, the version of like, again, we might have different technology or name for that in three years than we have today. But I think the concept being the same, which is like you can render high-end things from your phone 
that seem like incomprehensible today where we're still stuck on WebGL or different types of experiences because everything's running from a GPU in the cloud. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that in terms of a more like a world-centric view of like good or bad, et cetera. My view sure. on technology oftentimes is like you can stand on a mountain and scream into the wind if you want because you don't like it, or you can try to like steer it in the direction that you think is the best case, right? And I definitely choose the latter as a more productive use of my time. That is a beautiful way of putting it. I wish I will, I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> because yeah. I've had a different way of looking at it. I was like, it's like you're either... My feel, especially on the AI stuff, is like just from the artist point of view, mm-hmm. it's like you're either a hundred percent against it or you're the mm-hmm. other person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's just not, that's very productive in some ways. It's um, not. Yeah. And uh, but uh, but I do think that there's definitely some things to be thinking about and where it's going to go. So yeah. But let's get back. Let's get let's keep going on some of this AI stuff because I think it's interesting. You started with Amelia, right? So that was an interesting mm-hmm. thing in what Amelia is. Now today, an Amelia could be developed very, very, very quickly and probably much better in some ways in terms of the capabilities and many different types of capabilities at the same time. Mm-hmm. What are your what are your thoughts on what you know Avatar OS is like? I'm going to make a digital human. I'm going to use Avatar OS, and Avatar OS is going to give me all the capabilities to make my avatar do whatever I want it to do. You know, yeah. be a DJ, be a host, be uh, you know a buddy, whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the like if you're if you're in my position, right, and you're looking at the outlet, and like what are the like the fear would be like saturation of a market, right? Like you're saying, like sure. you can imagine this being easier to do, and more people could do it, etc. And I think that's valid. I think the opportunity is that the opportunity to stick out as doing really high quality, essentially really difficult things very well, is actually going to stand out more in a saturated market full of things. Because I, you know, I've seen up close and personal. Like you can say, okay, connect AI to mouth movement, and if you've seen like the ones that are out there right now it still looks like puppet mouth. It still does. It still sure. takes this unique ability to like, how do you actually have a character that emotes and connects with humans? So, and, and like a, a lot of times, I think Mike Seymour, when I talked to him for the FX podcast, um, yeah. he was, or the FX guide magazine, he was basically asked me, how do you scale that connection that you built with Amelia? And I, my answer to him was like, that's not the part you scale. Like you have to have people that understand and have a, something to say, I, you know, I compare it to like a, a musician. It's like the the improvement in music technology doesn't mean you can write a better song necessarily. It makes right. it easier to do aspects of that, but it gives people more people more of a platform and more of an opportunity to share something that they actually have to say and to build that connection. And that, that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what I view what we're trying to do. We're trying to create better tools and better systems and better ability for people to do that. But at the end of the day, I think like whether it's a chatbot or something else, like there's going to be great work and there's going to be like the masses, right? And I think if you're targeting that high-end one, then you're going to have, you don't need to fear so much like the saturation of the market because you're trying to attack, you know, that really elite, really difficult thing to do. Um, and, and so is that what you're focusing on, on the elite right now? We're, we're focusing on the elite, but I would say it's kind of with a nuance. Like I think, I would say what we're trying to do is kind of like, can we get 90 to 95% quality of what you would expect from a studio that's spending like 10 times the cost, right? And sure. can you use technology to do that? And that might be ambitious, but I think if we're doing that, that's a, that's probably going to be a pretty good recipe for success, right? Because you can try to scale that using technology and different tools that if you're a studio, you might be trying to create a division to do this innovation, but it's much harder with a kind of set model and a bigger team, et cetera, to do these things than a small startup that's literally starting off with the goal of using technology to build these things. It's really hard, um, not insulting these studios. I think it's just like the, the way your business is set up is not 
like you'd have to change completely to try to shift every time a new technology comes your way. It's just very hard to do. So I think we have that advantage. And I think we have an advantage um, in terms of our history and experience with digital humans and how to really do these really hard things in a way that's somewhat scalable. And I think if we're right about the kind of like the trends of, of the next couple of years, we'll be in a pretty good position to kind of like, you know, have a significant impact. And what is your ultimate goal? I mean, obviously, you what you guys are looking to be a platform for digital humans more specifically, right? Yeah, I think my ultimate goal would be to like bring a high level of human like character that can like connect and tell stories. And it would be like empowering digital humans that are actually like prevalent. It's like stars and able to like do things that we think are, are cool and kind of like start to build this first wave of digital human celebrities and digital human storytelling right so i call it virtual character driven storytelling i think that that storytelling is like this transformative thing and and we have new new methods of entertainment and media now and i want to like enable these new stars of kind of like the the budding metaverse to kind of be able to be prevalent and permeate our our storytelling uh, in a new way and by celebrities are you mean they're celebrities in the way that michaela is a celebrity or you're taking an actual live celebrity and turning them into a digital version <laughs> I mean more in the way that Michaela is. I think that okay. we we definitely, that there'll be some of both. Like, I don't sure. think we, I think technologically there's going to be a big difference between the two, but in terms sure. of like their impact, it's pretty similar. Um, if, that, if that makes sense, I think you, yeah. I, I think I'm thinking of it, I think untying the, the connection to a physical human, I think that in its own way has a, has a, I don't know, a restrictive quality to it in a sense. Sure. Like one, there are very valid, like, IP and like concerns around like that person and like, you know, the digitization of yourself. And I think if you're kind of creating as a group an entity that you're all contributing to, I think there's, there's something powerful there um, that we experienced with Michaela, but also I think other people have figured out as well. Yeah. Interesting. I actually, I was reading an article the other day that, uh, that I was thinking about and it's not really related, but I think you'd be a good person to sort of answer this. There is a whole new sort of business model that's coming up called grief technology. Have you heard of grief technology? It's I people not. who lost loved ones and they're trying oh, to recreate okay. versions of their loved ones. Mainly right now it's as chatbots. So you get this random text from your, your dead father or dead mother or whatever. Uh, but I'm wondering like how, what are your thoughts on like, you know, trying to like ease the pain of grief, especially if that departure was very sudden? <laughs> I think that's very interesting. I think it's probably going to be like a very strong reaction from a lot of people on that type of thing, right? We mm -hmm. as humans have like a very emotional reaction to things. Um, and oftentimes, I think one of the things that happens with technology is that you usually get into areas where there's strong um, visceral responses early on. And then over sure. time, it, it maybe smooths out. So I don't know where we'll end up with that. I have no doubt that people will be doing that and trying to solve that problem. Whether or not it's a problem people want to need to be solved will probably be decided by the market, I would guess. Sure. Um, yeah, I can see how people would also be like, you know, I, you know, I have a sibling that I lost when I was younger. And I could see how it would be, I don't know. It's just such an emotional thing that I think that the audience would definitely decide kind of the, the val or validate the need for that kind of technology. Yeah, I mean, I guess emotionally, like you know, regardless if whether that person needs to continue to stay alive in an artificial mm -hmm. state or not, I think that also the, the idea, I'm sure you, it's like you gotta let go after a while, otherwise it's gonna right. be hard. Yeah, yeah. But At I still think point, as, it, yeah. as as technology goes, I mean, obviously there is, uh, there are gonna be these needs that people have of digital humans as companions, right? I mean, this has been talked about as well. At which point, that is something that's more accessible to a 
an audience or to to the to the masses. Do you mm-hmm. think that the technology you're developing, how long do you think that it'll be more accessible to the masses? You know, where you say, oh, you know, grandma needs her granddaughter, virtual granddaughter here every day to hang out with her, even though granddaughter is working or something, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think you know it's a very valid question. I, you know, with ChatGPT coming out, you'll see you know definitely heard a number of people talking about like, I guess you call it um, virtual assistants or people that really are just like your your digital robot, your person that helps you through whatever else like sure. that. And that natural, obviously, evolution that would be to put a face on it. And I think that technology will be available relatively soon at some quality you know so i think it always just depends on like are you visualizing westworld and like you know maybe we're gonna be able for, for, for physical robots in the future or you know what how, what to what degree i guess is the real answer to that sure but um but yeah i think you'll you'll see a lot of versions of this popping up and whether our technology is like a big piece of that i think depends on a number of factors but i think it, it definitely could be um because we're still trying to figure out you know one of the things we're doing early on is basically validating tests in a number of, as many markets as we can, you know, from metaverse to web three to digital fashion to video game, right? Cause all of these things yep. are similar, but they have very different needs, you know, take virtual fashion is an interesting one because it's very different from the others, right? They care very little bit about the dynamic facial rig and very much about the very subtle nuances of the, you know, your body and your physical movement and, and order of simulation. Whereas a video game is almost entirely different and, and, and vice versa. So I think trying to test these things out and figure out where we can create the most impact is, is one of the ways we're going about this um, and trying to just stay core to like the overall mission and say, like, how can we kind of steer this company through, a, honestly, a very trying global, um, global economic environment and kind of like navigate our way to a future that we see that would actually create something that we're proud of. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a that's an interesting uh, thing to, to think about. All right. Well, listen, we're coming up uh, uh, at the end here. Real cool. And I wanted to know, like, you know, what can you tell people about some things to look forward to, or some of the things that you guys are up to? Yeah, cool. We, I mean, we have some some really cool um, early client activations coming up, which is cool. And then we'll also be working on our first releasing our first four digital avatars, which we're hoping by the end of the year we'll release a beta of our kind of technology, which will allow you to go and interact with and use, or at least test these really high end avatars in a web browser, right? So you can do some really cool things and, and have them interact with you. So that's something that we're, you can look forward to at the, by the end of this year. Um, and then hopefully some cool activations of really high end avatars with some cool clients that we're working with um, as well this year. That's awesome. All right. Well, people can follow on the website. We'll put links in the, in the, sh- in the show notes for, for this, which is cool. Uh, but listen, it was Isaac. It's awesome talking to you. I really appreciate it. Uh, you are uh, you are definitely in an area that I am fascinated with, uh, and I have been studying for a long time. So I'm very excited to see this and to see all the things you're doing. That's great. It was great talking to you, Chris. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it.